be turning to 1 <coughs> Corinthians. Matthew, do you have this on? Be turning to 1 Corinthians. If you don't have a Bible, there should be some in pew in front of you. This morning we come to our third of four messages in our series, April Fools. We've said many today believe the biggest April Fools prank is what the church is pulling and convincing people there is a God. The Bible is true. The cross is the only way and Jesus is risen. These questions aren't the making of April Fools pranks, but questions to which the answers have eternal consequences. And so our purpose this series, if you're here and you don't know the Lord, is to help you wrestle with your doubts and make your own decision. If you're a believer, to defend and stand firm in your faith. So far, we've looked at there is a God, the Bible is true, and this morning we come to Jesus. The cross is the only way. And so to get us thinking about the message, I want to ask you, what is the most offensive symbol you know? See, I've got a couple on the screen. If you're a Chevy guy, then Ford is offensive. Found on the roadside dead, fixed to repair daily, right? Amen. Or if you're a Ford guy, Chevy. Cheapest heap ever envisioned yet. Or Dodge drips oil, drops grease everywhere. Or maybe if you're a lady, you know, it's a coach or, or Michael Kors, whichever purse you happen to like. Or the next one, that's pretty offensive. The Dallas Cowgirls, for those that are Steelers fans or NFC East teams, that's offensive. How about this one? Oh, yes. No. You see, this, I was reading the, uh, a meme uh, that a good friend of mine sent and said that there was a couple and they were at Chick-fil-A and they were eating and the uh, mom asked the little girl to, had she blessed her food before she ate and she said, I don't have to, this is Jesus' restaurant, it's already been blessed. <laughs> but you see, we're now leaving the purely preferential whether I want to die or I want a Ford and we're moving into something that's moral and spiritual because why does Chick-fil-A offend people? Because it's Christian and it was seen as anti-gay marriage when it took a stance against that. Alright, next. Swastika. Do you know it's actually an ancient religious icon before it was that of Nazi Germany in World War II and Holocaust? So let me ask you, what could be more offensive than a swastika? that shock you? You see, to many, the cross is a symbol of Christianity and the forgiveness and hope that a crucified, risen Jesus Christ brings and offers to a lost and dying world. And to many, it's a symbol of hate and bigotry, racism, narrow-mindedness, and exclusivism. And some of it, brothers and sisters, is well-earned. The Crusades, the Inquisition, when we bomb abortion clinics, Westboro Baptist. But more than anything, why is the cross so offensive? Because we live in a culture in which one-fourth to one-third of Americans say there is no absolute truth. And to say absolutely the only way a man or woman can stand right before God, the only way they can earn entrance into heaven is the cross, is Jesus Christ, period, point blank, that's it, is extremely offensive. Amen? And so is Jesus the only way? Is it April Fool's to believe or is it full to believe otherwise? So stand with me to honor the reading of God's Word, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 
When you're there, say, I am. I am. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, starting at verse 18. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews, and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Amen? The Word of God, to the people of God, preaching the power of the Spirit of God, let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for this day. Thank you for this time that you have allowed us to come to your house, Father, and worship you. Father, thank you so much for the old rugged cross. But Father, we thank you more than that. Then Jesus going and dying for our sins, he didn't stay dead. But he came back to life just as he said he would that third day. And we look forward to celebrating that next week. But we celebrate it even now, Father, because that is our only hope, the living hope that Jesus Christ gives us. So, Father, I pray as we come to this time to open your word and to feast on it, Father, that you will just give us ears to hear and hearts to be molded to the truths therein. Father, that we can take something from today and apply it to our lives. For it's in Jesus' wonderful and precious name we pray. Amen. So first, we're going to look at interrogation. Is Jesus, the cross, the only way? Recall what I said in our first message, that if we focus so heavily on the Great Commission, the Great Commandment, shouldn't we be giving equal attention to the Great Question? Does God exist? Is the Bible real? Is the cross the only way? Is Jesus risen because eternal destinies are at stake? And like I said, such exclusivity, Jesus, the cross is the only way, grates on the nerve of a postmodern era. Yet that is the testimony of the Scriptures and the Savior. Go ahead and be turning to 1 Timothy 2, and I'll give you the testimony of the Scriptures. Jesus is the only one chosen by God in 1 Peter 2, 4. The only one come from heaven in John 3.13. The only perfect life ever lived in Hebrews 4.15. The only one who ever fulfilled the law in Matthew 5.17. The only sacrifice for sin in 1 John 2.2. The only one to conquer death in Hebrews 2.14-15. The only one exalted by God in Philippians 2.9. And the only mediator between God and man, 1 Timothy 2.5. Verse 3, starting there, this is good and is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Does it say two? What does one mean in Greek? One. One mediator. Jesus and that's it. Turn to Acts 4, 12. Starting in verse 11, Peter says this, Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders which has become a cornerstone, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Amen? Amen. And so when I tell a world, a lost and dying world, when I tell people in my office that Jesus is the only way, if they get upset by that and they get offended by that, they don't have a problem with Buffy Cook. They have a problem with the Scriptures. 
But it's more so than just the Scriptures. They have a problem with Jesus Himself. Because the testimony of the Savior, turn to John 14, 6. Only He's the bread of life. Amen? Only He's the light of the world. Only He's the resurrection and the life. I used this verse when I was uh, debating a, a couple when we were in Africa. And they admitted that Jesus was the greatest prophet that had ever lived. And I quoted John 14, 6, and I said, you just acknowledged out of your own mouth He's the greatest prophet that ever lived. The greatest prophet that ever lived said this. Look at verse 6. I am a way. The way. I am a truth. I am the truth. I am one pathway to life. I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. You know, I've jokingly told you before, what, what, what does no mean in Greek? Actually, here it don't. It means no, not, but one. It's not only a double negative, it's an absolute negative. No other possibilities. And so if you're offended by the cross, you're not offended by me telling you that. You're offended by the man who died on it and said he's the only way to heaven and the only way to the Father. But you know what we do? We have people that will teach, preach, and believe other than this, and it might shock you who some of them are. Let me give you a couple. One, and I'm not putting words in their mouth, it's out of their own mouth, Oprah. She says, I am a Christian. She then in an interview said there are millions of ways to get to God. So much influence she has that it is known that it's the church of Oprah amongst her followers. She was one time then interviewing Joe Olstein, and she asked him, how would you describe God to a non-believer? And he said, God is a friend to the non-believer. Now, I don't know what Bible he's reading, but my Bible doesn't say that he's a friend with the unbeliever. It says he's at war with the unbeliever. She then said, are there many paths to get to God? And he said, there may be many ways to Jesus. This man has the largest congregation in the entire United States. And he says that Jesus is not the only way. One reverend here in the South taken up for Oprah, he says she's received some bad press simply for stating she believes there are multiple paths to God. Our understanding of God is limited. And then he tells this illustration that Buddha told of four blind men and an elephant. Y'all heard this? Four blind men and an elephant and each is filling a different part. The one is filling the elephant's side and he says it's a wall. The one is filling the elephant's legs and he says it's a tree. The third is filling the elephant's tail and he says it's a whip. The fourth is filling the elephant's trunk and he says it's a snake. And so this man makes this point. He says they all have a piece of the puzzle that is the elephant. So it is with truth. We each have a piece but not the whole piece. So Oprah and this pastor and Joe Osteen would have you believe Jesus the cross is the only way April fools. Brothers and sisters, this is why the Bible is so explicit in warning us of false teachers. And is why I have told you time and time again from this pulpit, be careful who you listen to on a repeated basis. And it's why Paul calls us here in 1 Corinthians 1 to reject human wisdom and instead rely on divine wisdom. Listen to what Colossians 2.8 says in the New Living Translation. 
Don't let anyone capture you with empty philosophies and high-sounding nonsense. That's what some pastors are espousing from the pulpit. High-sounding nonsense that come from human thinking and from the spiritual powers of this world rather than from Christ. So what I want us to do in this next little bit is I want us to look at human wisdom versus divine wisdom and then you decide for yourself who you want to believe. Human wisdom or divine wisdom. So let's look first at human wisdom. Who would you say is the smartest man to ever live? Einstein, Hawking, Plato, Newton. I read of one gentleman here in America, he had an IQ between 250 and 300. I can't even think of that. The smartest man ever to live according to the Bible in 1 Kings 4 was who? Solomon. So turn to Proverbs. We're going to read several verses out of Proverbs. What's the old joke? Girls go to college to get more knowledge. Boys go to Jupiter to get more stupider. So people tell you, go to college if you want to get some sense. Right? What's the Bible tell you? Proverbs 1, 7. We're going to flip through several verses. You want to be smart, young people? I ain't telling you not necessarily to go to college, but I'm going to tell you the best way to be smart. Because I thought I was smart for many, many years and I was really stupid. The fear of the Lord, in verse 7, is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. You want true wisdom and true intelligence? Get in this thing. Digest it on a daily basis. Get off your iPhones and your iPads and your Playstations. And old people... Get your Bible off the shelf and dust it off and read it. Look at chapter 2, verse 6. For the Lord gives wisdom. From His mouth come knowledge and understanding. We all know chapter 3, verse 5 to 7. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and don't lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will make straight your paths. Look here. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. Look at chapter 12, verse 15. The way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man listens to advice. And then chapter 16, verse 16. You want to be rich? Then get some wisdom and get it from the Lord. How much better to get wisdom than gold, to get understanding, is to be chosen rather than silver. Well, who would you say is the greatest theologian to ever live? Augustine, Luther. Did somebody say Paul? Who I would say. Galatians 1, 11 to 12 says he got all of his revelation, all of his knowledge directly from Jesus Christ. Can you think of any greater thinker than if you got it directly from Jesus himself? And so back to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18 and 19, he says, Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God, for it is written, He catches the wise in their craftiness. Do we dare as humans be wise in our own eyes and caught in our own craftiness when we say, April fools, the cross is not the only way? Especially in light of three things I'm going to give you. First is the folly of human wisdom. Look back at 1 Corinthians verse 18. 
For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. Verse 22 and 23, For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews, and folly to Gentiles. The Greek word there for folly is what we get our English word moron from. To those who are perishing, the Greek is moronic. There's only two categories of people in the world, amen? Children of God that are saved and children of the devil that are lost. And of that latter category, the children of the devil, there's two subcategories, the Jew and the Greek. And so look at those here as Paul says, first to the Jew the cross is moronic. Their cultural currency was signs. Be turning to Matthew chapter 12. Every gospel, Matthew 16, Mark 8, Luke 11, John 2, confirms the Jews wanted to see a sign from Jesus. But yet they ignored the greatest sign that they ever would be given. Matthew 12, verse 38 to 40. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So they ignored this ultimate sign. Why? Because to them the cross was moronic. Paul says it was a stumbling block. That's the Greek word that actually means the trigger mechanism for an animal trap. They got trapped in their own craftiness. Why? Because they wanted a Messiah who was going to do what? Put down Rome. A crucified Christ to them was an insult. It was defeat, not victory. According to Deuteronomy 21-23, he who hangs on a tree is cursed of God. And so a crucified Christ was cursed to God, not the servant of God, but they completely ignored Psalm 22 and Isaiah 53 that said clearly he would be crucified. And so the cross became a stumbling block to them. Wise in their own eyes, caught in the animal trap of their own craftiness, they rejected Christ. What foolishness. Second, look at the Greek. The Greek, the cross is moronic. Why? Because their cultural currency is wisdom. We see this throughout the New Testament. Turn to Acts chapter 17. Athens was the cultural center of Greece. It was home to some of the most renowned philosophers in history, including Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle. And so Paul comes preaching the cross to them in Acts chapter 17. And look at what is said in verse 18. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him, and some said, What does this babbler wish to say? And look at verse 21. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. All they were worried about was some wisdom and hearing something new. More and more and more wisdom. And so Paul comes teaching this, and they call him a babbler. That word in the Greek literally means seed picker. They were saying, you don't even have any knowledge of your own, Paul. You're just picking some little philosophy from this one and from this one and this one like a wisdom buffet. And you're just going through and picking one little piece of this and one little piece of that. And look at uh, verse 32. It says, now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we'll hear you again about this. Come on back again and we'll listen to this. But this really is foolishness to us. Aristides said, On every street in Corinth one met a so-called wise man who had his own solutions to humanity's problems. 
In other words, there was no absolute truth. Does that sound like our culture today? Now, crucifixion was a horrible death, shameful death. You couldn't even crucify a Roman citizen. It would never be mentioned in polite society. D.A. Carson says, what gives this illustration? What would you think of a woman that came to work wearing earrings stamped with the image of the mushroom cloud of the atomic bomb dropped over Hiroshima? He says, or what about a church building adorned with the fresco of masked graves at Auschwitz? That same sort of shock and horror associated with the cross and crucifixion in the first century. There was a Rome character of Christianity in which a worshiper was standing before a crucified figure with the body of a man and a head of a donkey and the inscription, Aleximenus worships his God. So wise in their own eyes, caught in the animal trap of their own wisdom, they rejected Christ. What foolishness. You know, little has changed in 2,000 years, right? Don't folks still want signs? Don't they want some absolute proof that Jesus is who He said He is and that He is truly raised? Don't folks still want wisdom? Science? We're going to see that in just a second. But I want to look, so we've looked at the folly of human wisdom. I want you to look at the finality of human wisdom. Look at 1 Corinthians 1, 19. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Many of you likely heard two weeks ago a beloved American died. Stephen Hawkins. Age 76, he lost his battle 55 years to ALS. He was one of the most brilliant scientists and thinkers of our time. What you may not know is that just last year he warned this, we must leave earth to survive. He felt we were running out of time on planet earth and he said this, he said, we basically have 100 years to find a new planet and populate it. He gave different factors for this, climate change, the threat of nuclear war, viruses, population growth, we're overdue for an asteroid strike, and so he said, it's time we get out of here. And this is actually detailed in a BBC documentary, Expedition New Earth, you can pull it up and watch it. Here's where it gets interesting. Hawking in a 2011 Guardian interview said, I regard the brain as a computer which will stop working when its components fail. There's no heaven or afterlife for broken down computers. That is a fairy tale for people afraid of the dark. Well, if the brain is nothing more than a computer, it simply stops working at death. Why should we trust it now? Amen? And I know our world is in a hot mess, but I don't know about you. Just because Stephen Hawking says we need to do so, I ain't going to jump on no spaceship to Mars no time soon just because he thinks we got got 100 years or less here. Amen? And if that doesn't come to pass in 100 years, then why would we ever believe his assertion about afterlife? One thing he does get right is that God is going to put an uh, end to all human wisdom when Jesus Christ comes back. Because that's what the Word says there. Alright, next is the foolishness of human wisdom. Look at what Paul says in verse 20 and 21. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Is not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. Think about the many ways God's wisdom has proven itself superior to human wisdom. Let me give you a couple. Logical. If we can see there's a higher being and God is infinite and omniscient and we're finite and limited and if this room represented all the knowledge that was available in the universe, 
How much would you say you have inside your brain? A speck worth of dust? So if I would admit that I have a speck worth of dust and this is all the knowledge God has, how could I ever think that my wisdom was superior to His? But when we look at the cross, we say our wisdom is superior to God's and that is nothing more than foolishness. Some would say today it's nothing more than cosmic child abuse. That a father would kill his son. That's actually what Muslims teach and believe. Alright, what about experiential? The B-I-B-L-E, basic instructions before leaving earth. Dr. Rogers said, he who has a Bible that's falling apart probably has a life that ain't. And Ronald Reagan said the answers to all the problems that men face, the solutions are found within the cover of the Bible. George Washington once said that it's impossible to rightly govern without God in the Bible. And Lincoln said that this is the best gift God has given a man because all the good the Savior gave to the world was communicated to it. And then scientifical, I gave you this here. And I'm just going to read a little bit because I could read this whole thing, but I know that you are grown up and you can read. But I found an interesting thing. 101 scientific facts and foreknowledge, and I've distilled it down to 31 of them for you. One for each day of the month. Astronomy. The earth free floats in space according to Job 26.7. Hindus used to say that it was carried on the back of four elephants standing on the back of a cosmic turtle. Number three. The earth is a sphere. So when Isaiah wrote that in uh, chapter 40 verse 22 that was in 739 B.C. And yet... Aristotle didn't declare it until 350 B.C. and Ferdinand Magellan didn't demonstrate it until 1500 A.D. The sun goes in a circuit, Psalm 19.6. Some scientists looked at that and said, you people are crazy teaching that uh, the earth, you know, the sun revolves around the earth. But now we know that the whole galaxy is actually moving and it's moving in amongst the universe. So the Bible is true. Number nine, under microbiology, you can visit the first book of public hygiene. You know what we told everybody to do during the flu season? Other than get your flu shot? Wash your hands under running water. God said that all the way back in Leviticus. Did you know that up until a hundred years ago that doctors would go do autopsies on deceased people with all manner of illness and sickness and then they would go tend to normal people and not wash their hands? God said all the way back in Leviticus 15, don't do something that stupid. Or oceanography, that the oceans contain springs and there's mountains at the bottom of the ocean floor, that there's ocean currents that we just now are figuring this out. Biology. Genesis 1.24 says, God created life according to kinds. I don't know about you, but I ain't seen no cats transforming into horses here lately. Have y'all? Evolutionary biology does not have it figured out. Or you can keep going. Anthropology. We're all created from one blood. We all have one gene pool. Don't believe me? 23 and me. Or medicine that I practice every day. You know how George Washington died? Because he went to a doctor. That was his mistake. He went to a doctor. And they put leeches on him to bleed him out. Because they thought that would help. They didn't know that the life was in the blood and they bled him out. 
or God has given us the leaves of the trees as medicine. Do you know the greatest medicine there is on the planet today? Aspirin. You know how many lives it saved? You know where it comes from? The bark of a willow tree. Or how about healthy dietary laws? Yesterday when I sat down to eat my country ham, I literally prayed, Lord, thank you that I don't have to abide by the dietary laws anymore. Amen. Did you know that it's ideal for circumcision to take place on the eighth day? Whoever would have thought that? God said it all the way back in Leviticus. Modern science has just now figured it out because that's when the clotting factors are the highest in the human body. More and more. This ain't a science textbook, but when it speaks on science, it is absolutely 100 billion percent correct. Amen? It's a theology book. Alright, then spiritual. Look at 1 Corinthians 1.21. Since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God. The ultimate foolishness is that human wisdom can never enable people to get to know God. Amen? In fact, I would say it can be such a source of pride that it will keep them away from them. One of the fathers of the faith said this, Man with all his shrewdness is as stupid about understanding by himself the mysteries of God as an ass is incapable of understanding musical harmony. You couldn't get a donkey to come up here and play the guitar and have us do it in accord. But man thinks that he can figure out all the things about God and all the mysteries about God. Will God help us? Amen. Well, He did. And it's called Calvary. And so look at the divine wisdom. We're going to turn to that. Look here at verse 24, what it says. But to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. So I want to give you God's wisdom and then His power. His wisdom. First, real forgiveness is costly suffering. If I back out of Jimmy's drive and I hit somebody's gate and knock down part of their wall and the property insurance won't pay, then there's really three options. That person can demand that I pay. He can refuse to let me pay or we can share the cost, right? But do you see what all options have in common? Somebody's going to have to what? Pay. The debt doesn't vanish into thin air, does it? So forgiveness is bearing the cost of the misdeed yourself. But can the wrongs done to us be measured in purely economic terms? Can they be measured against God in purely economic terms? And really there's only two options. We can make the person suffer, but what does that do? Leads to what? Retaliation. Or I can... Forgive, and people have said that that's a kind of death, and that leads to resurrection. Tim Keller said, On the cross we see God doing visibly and cosmically what every human being must do to forgive someone, though on an infinitely greater scale. So real forgiveness is costly suffering, and our Lord suffered greatly, did He not? And then number two, real love is a personal exchange. Do y'all know the story of Tale of Two Cities by Dickens? In which one man, what does he do? He exchanges his life for another man, right? Isn't that exactly what Jesus did on the cross for us? He came in and he to the courtroom, God's courtroom, and he said, "You go free because I'm going to pay the ticket that you never could pay." And then he died on the cross for us. Real love is a personal exchange. I mean, why did God? Have Christ die for us? The Bible tells us clearly 
love. But God demonstrated his love towards us, and while we were sinners, Christ died for us. So that's the wisdom of God, the power of God. Think of these three things. The penalty of sin. Doesn't crime demand punishment? That's why you have a job, is it not, Billy? Because we all assert that crime demands punishment. Now, does stealing demand the same as rape and the same as murder? Is someone, if they steal something, Billy, going to get the same amount of time as they would if they kill someone? Why? Because the greater the crime, the greater the punishment. But what about crimes against God and not crimes against humanity? Remember, I've told you the five-question test. You ever told a lie? You ever stole something? You ever looked at a member of the opposite sex lustfully? You ever been so angry with somebody you screamed or yelled at them or wanted to punch them? Jesus says that that is murder and the former, he said, is adultery. You ever taken the name of the Lord in vain? You're a lying, thieving, adulterous, murderous blasphemer. And that's against God. So what does God require? Hebrews 9.22 says that there is no remission of sin without the shedding of blood. And so what happened at the first act of disobedience? What did God do for Adam and Eve? He killed an animal and He covered them. What did God do in the ultimate act of deliverance in sending the Egyptians or the Israelites out of Egypt? A Passover lamb. What did Jesus say? What do we do every time we take the Lord's Supper? We remember the cup. This is my blood shed for you for the remissions of sin. In Romans 5, or think about Romans 8.1, there's now no condemnation. The penalty of my sin is completely gone. Talk about some power, amen? The second thing, the penalty of sin, the power of sin. Why was Jesus named Jesus? He will save His people from their sins. Salvation is not just that I need removed from the penalty of sin. How many of you need removed from the power of sin in your life? How many of you are your own worst enemy when it comes to sin? And so that's why Jesus came. I shared this verse with a lady in the office this week. John 8.36 if, if Jesus has set you free, you're free indeed. Stop being a slave to sin. And then number three, the presence of sin. David, I thought of that song, What a Day That Will Be. Man, I think of that. I'm telling y'all, maybe it's because I'm old, I don't know. But every day in my office, I think of that. I think, glory, hallelujah, when Jesus comes back, there will be no diabetes. There will be no man that I have to say, you have Parkinson's. There will be no one that I have to say, you have cancer and are going to die within the next month. There will be no more disease. You know why? Because there will be no more sin. Because the wages of sin is death. Glory, hallelujah, that one day we will have bodies that will never tear up. And I share that with so many patients as the hope. Sir, ma'am, do you know that hope? Your body is ravaged by your own sin. I told a lady that this week. I said, do you realize what will be the ultimate cause of death on Buffy Cook's death certificate? 
I don't know what it will be. I told my wife I'm morbid. I think of that all the time. How am I going to die? Am I going to die in some car wreck with my leg up wrapped around my head? Am I going to have cancer all over myself? Or is it just going to be boom, I'm dead? I don't know. But when you think about it, you will never, ever, ever be in the presence of that again. Man. I said, the death certificate for Buffy Cook, I don't know what it's going to say, but you know what it could say? S-I-N. That's what the Bible says. Clearly, I'm going to be the only cause of my death. And thank the Lord, Colossians 1.20 is coming to set everything straight and reconcile everything to itself. Finally, as far as determination, is Jesus the only way? You ever been blown away by human ingenuity? There was a special on the History Channel, 101 Inventions That Changed the World. Here were some of them, prosthetic limbs, credit card, robots, lighthouse, microwave, hammer, x-ray, plastic, cell phone, eyeglasses, refrigerator, concrete, penicillin, the car, on and on. That's a pretty amazing list, isn't it? And what about you? What are some of the best things human imagination has come up with? My wife and I were watching a commercial Thursday, Robo Twist. Man, that's an amazing invention. You just put that thing on there and boom, it pops the top on anything you need. You know when you're sitting there and you're struggling, you're beating it with a hammer? But do you know one invention that man has not come up with? A way to cheat death and live forever. They're trying. Cryogenics. My own boys froze a frog one time. I opened up the freezer and I thought, what in the world is this in this cup frozen? They had frozen a frog because they wanted to practice cryogenics if they get the thing back to life. That's how men are, isn't it? We think if we can freeze ourselves that one day we'll just miraculously then live forever. We have never come up with a way to cheat death and live forever. But God did. But you know what it looks like to the world? Foolishness. It's moronic. Listen to what Max Lucado said. I love this. He said the cross... It rests on the timeline of history like a compelling diamond. Its tragedy summons all sufferers. Its absurdity attracts all cynics. Its hope lures all searchers. My, what a piece of wood. History has idolized it and despised it, gold-plated it and burned it, worn and trashed it. History has done everything to it but ignore it. Listen, that's the one option the cross does not offer. No one can ignore it. You can't ignore a piece of lumber that suspends the greatest claim in history. A crucified carpenter claiming he's God on earth, divine, eternal, the death slayer, a blue-collar Jew whose claim altered the world and whose promise has never been equaled. No wonder they call him a Savior. Or the Savior. In closing, Dr. Henry Fritz Schaefer earned his Ph.D. in chemical physics. I don't even know what that is. From Stanford University, for 18 years he was professor of chemistry at the University of California, Berkeley, one of the greatest uh, institutions as far as science goes in our country. He's authored more than 800 scientific publications and during the period of 1981 to 1997, so for 16 years he was the sixth most highly cited chemist in the world. In a recent lecture, after listening to some of his leading discoveries, this is what Dr. Schaefer said. You ready for this? He said, the most important discovery of my life was my discovery of Jesus Christ. 
1973, I discovered the Jesus Christ of history, the Jesus whose life is described on the pages of the New Testament. In other words, Dr. Schaefer believes in a hill called Mount Calvary. I concur with Dr. Schaefer. Over a 20-year tenure, I have discovered everything from diabetes to pregnancy to broken bones to cancers of all imaginable sorts to herniated discs to heart attacks before they happen to Paget's disease and lupus and some of the weirdest and rarest diseases known amongst humans. Ask the people who have gone to Africa. We see some crazy stuff. Amen? And yet, you know the most important discovery of my life was in my bedroom closet in the summer of 2001. And then, sitting in my bed the following days, reading the Gospel of John, and I was confronted with the Jesus Christ of history and discovered for the first time in my life the cross. And my Jesus, crucified on it, His blood shed for me. You can call me a fool. You can laugh at me. You can mock me and ridicule me. You can kill me if you must. I don't care how foolish you think it is, how foolish it might appear that a scientist of all things would believe in the cross till my final breath, I will cling to the old rugged cross. Amen. And as long as I live and God has breath in my body, I will tell as many people as will listen the wondrous story of the Christ who died for me, how He left His home in glory for the cross of Calvary. For I too believe in a hill called Mount Calvary. Church, do you believe in a hill called Mount Calvary? I thought one of the best ways for us to end this service before we come to the time of invitation was for us to sing together, I believe in a hill called Mount Calvary. So if you will, as David comes up, stand and we want to sing. I believe in a hill called Mount Calvary. I believe whatever the cost. And one time has surrendered and earth is no more. I'll still cling This life with its great mysteries Surely one day will come to an end Oh, but faith will conquer the darkness and death And will lead me to the last to my Christ who was slain on the cross has the power to change lives today for he changed me completely a 
new life is mine that is why by the cross I will stay and I believe in a hill called Mount Calvary I believe whatever the cost and when time has surrendered and earth is no more I'll still cling to the old rugged cross and when time has surrendered and earth is no more I'll still cling God's people said, Amen. let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have chosen what is foolish in the world to shame the wise, that you have chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong, that you have chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God, but each and every one of us that is here today would boast only in the Lord and the precious old wooden cross. Father, thank you for this time to gather together and worship you today and to feast upon your word. I pray as we come to this time of invitation that, Father, if there's anyone here that needs to come home today, Father, you will give them ears to hear and the Holy Spirit to quicken their heart to hear your word because we know faith comes by hearing and hearing comes through the word of God. I ask this now in the wonderful, powerful name of Jesus. Amen. If you'll be seated momentarily for invitation and then offering. This week I saw where a friend of mine on Facebook was pseudo-bragging about unexpectedly winning a case in court. It got me to thinking, what about man in the court of God? Romans 14, 12 says that we each will give an account of himself to the Lord. Job 9, 2 in the Good News translation says, how can a human being win a case against God? I tell you, he can't. The five-question test, I told you. And Paul in Romans 4 says that what we never could do, God did. And it's been His plan from the beginning to render a not guilty verdict in His Supreme Court. Nine times Paul uses the word credited or count. It's a mathematical and legal term meaning to compute, to come to a bottom-line decision, to render a verdict. And listen to what it was for Abraham. For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And then David in verse 6, just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. And so we read then in verse 24 and 25, but the words that was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also it will be counted to us who believe in him who raised him from the dead, Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. And so let me ask you, one day when you stand in judgment before God and His Supreme Court, what are you going to count on? What are you computing to get you into heaven? You're going to cling to self that you're a good person, cling to stuff, good works, or you're going to cling to the Savior, the old rugged cross? Let me put it another way. When you stand in judgment before God and God's Supreme Court, what are you believing in? Putting your faith in. Who's going to be your attorney? You're going to do self-defense? 
Ask Job how that one worked out. Amen? Are you going to go to JCJD? Jesus Christ, the Supreme Defense Attorney. Will it be said of you on that day when time is surrendered and earth is no more, I'll still cling to the old rugged cross. If you need to know Jesus today, come as we sing. Let's stand sing the invitations on the screen. On the screen. Days are filled with sorrow and care. Hearts are lonely and dreary. Yeah.